Hello, people. I hope you're having a great day. Tuning in to episode four of the State of the Universe with Dr. David Fisher, the one and only. This man was a professor of mine in my undergraduate years. He is a professor of physics by pra- by trade, rather, and he is a spaceflight historian by practice. No person, I-, I might actually be able to say this, no person on this planet knows more about spaceflight history than Dr. David Fisher. He is impeccable. I could say, hey, Dave, what is the, uh, what is the first cousin's name of the second man to step foot on the moon? And I could also ask him what that person weighed when they were born and also what day of the week they were born on. And I think he might be able to tell me all of those things because he's just that damn good. With that being said... I hope you enjoy the episode. Before we start, I want to mention something, okay? In this episode, I am very much myself, and when I am myself, what I can be is a little offensive in the sense that I, in the most recent episode, the the Daryl Treffert episode, a fantastic episode, but I always do these introductions to introduce you and to talk a little bit, to do a little monologue, and in the most recent one, if you... Listen to the episode when it was first released. I sort of took a shit on Philadelphia because I called it vile. I called it disgusting. Uh, I said that when you're at the airport, people will fly into the international airport and rip their passports up and tell customs that they lost them so that they get deported because the city looks so goddamn disgusting. To me, that's funny. And and that's the environment I grew up in is an environment where we kind of make fun of each other's things. You know, if I tell someone I like Yankees, I, which I don't because, oh my god. But if I tell someone I like the Yankees, I fully expect them to make fun of me for it and to, to poke fun at that team. If I tell someone that that um, I like the Cavaliers, I expect them to, to bullshit with me. That's just the environment I'm in, right? I get made fun of more by the people that are close to me than by anyone else in the entire world. I did not grow up in a sensitive environment, in an environment where everyone had to, to care about everyone else's feelings. And I'm not saying you shouldn't be that way. You should have some filter in the way that you handle the way other people look at things. You should not go around trying to offend everyone, but you also should not go around being afraid that something you say does offend someone, as long as it is not uh, crossing a line. And And I don't think that when I make comments like that, it is crossing a line. I think if I say Philadelphia is a disgusting city, even if I'm not joking about it, I do not think that 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 a line was crossed there. If I say New York City is disgusting and the vagrants that inhabit it is, is are they are disgusting, I don't think that's crossing a line. I don't know. Maybe we grew up in different worlds, but I do not fundamentally agree with people who like to be ultra-sensitive. And I don't think Dr. Trevor was trying to be ultra-sensitive. I think that um, he realizes that, that this podcast will reach many, many people. All right, his episode's been downloaded hundreds of times, and he knows that that some people will misconstrue what I say as something that he agrees with, and I get that. But this is a public service announcement right here. The public service announcement is that nothing I say in these monologues has anything to do with the person I'm interviewing, because this is me being me, and me being me is someone who's insensitive to certain things. Am I going to be racist? No. Am I going to be sexist? No. But am I going to tell you that Chicago is a shit city and their pizza sucks? Yes, I am going to tell you that. So with that being said, I hope you enjoy the episode.
three, two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, we have with us David Fisher, the one and only. <laughs> David Fisher, listen to me, okay? I need to say two words to you, and then that's going to gonna start this entire conversation. Space Force. Okay. <laughs> Talk to me about the Space Force. What did you think when, when our president of the United States, Donald J. Trump, says we are going to have a sixth branch of the yeah. military, the Space Force? Well, to be perfectly honest, that's not something I know that much about. I okay. hope I don't disappoint you on that no, one. No, no. I, I, I I'm more it... of the... the uh, um, civilian uh, space program stuff, and considering some things that were going on in my life at the time, I yeah. I wasn't following the news like I usually do. I'm quite a news junkie. But the, when I did hear about it, the first thing that just struck me was, well, it's about time, but in the following sense. Um, I got into a conversation on Facebook with a, a couple of people who were sort of jumping in as, I guess, what's the word, trolls on some other legitimate conversation. And they're going about all of the, you know, it's like uh, uh, something like Starship Troopers or something like that. And I yeah. said, no, no, this is probably just what was necessary since we had, uh, I think it's 1988 or so, when we set up Space Command. Mm-hmm. And they thought I was full of shit. I mean, no, we have a Space Command uh, to deal with the various space assets that the military uses all the time, but it's not terribly well organized. That's my first response is, oh, okay, it's about time there should be a separate one rather than most of it being in the Air Force, some of it being the Navy, attached to NORAD and the the intelligence things. Put it all together under one thing, but that may not be what it's all about. I I, I don't know. No, I think very little details are released, Mm -hmm. right? I think it was um, Donald being Donald and, uh, you know, just saying what was on his mind at the time what was on his mind at the time was the Space Force. Now, the Space Force is probably going to be a legitimate thing, and our yeah. government's going to move in that direction. In fact, I would say it's inevitable that our government's going to move in that direction, right? It's long it's, overdue. Yeah, it it's, should be a, a next It's not branch. necessarily a, a, a revolutionary thing, I wouldn't yeah. say, be in, in the sense that it was going to happen regardless. Yeah, it was an evolutionary thing, yes. re- revolution. Yes. But then again, maybe he does, in fact, have in mind that there's going to be ships going out to Neptune and fighting aliens or something yes. like that. I, I don't know. But well, it, it doesn't seem very much like that was his intent. But. Yes, as we start to have these uh, civilian expansion into space, mm-hmm. we're eventually going to have people that use space commerce. Right? They mine asteroids or they go to Mars and get certain materials. And so it's only natural that you eventually have uh, a sort of governmental body in space. And in this case, it's going to be a bunch of governments. Mm-hmm. If I'm not misunderstood, I think Russia at one point had a space force. Is that true? Um, now, whether or not again, they I'm, actually... that's not my expertise, but it sounds like they might have in principle. But... Okay, yeah. And I wouldn't be surprised if, if it now comes a time when all of the world governments start developing this idea of patrolling space or or trying to claim parts of space. Oh, well, there, there's some various things, again, and this gets into the legal aspects of spaceflight, again, not my area, but um, where the United Nations, there's space treaties um, in abundance. Yeah. And some of that deals with who owns the moon, what do you, how mm-hmm. do you go about doing the commercial thing, projecting many decades in advance of possible going out and actually doing um Mining of asteroids and the like, you know, yeah. who owns those resources and mm-hmm. uh, who can claim what. And there's still a lot that has to be worked out in that, that uh, area. And, and now it's becoming something that has to be done sooner rather than later because it's, it's coming. You mentioned owning the moon. Do you know who owns the moon? We all do as, as a human species. 
I see. So it's split. So I own a chunk of the moon as much as you own a chunk of the moon. Well, there are entities, and I still don't understand how they can get away with this. But there are entities, just like you can buy a star. Yes, I heard or a significant a, other. Or you can buy a crater or have yeah, something. I heard a radio moon. ad the other day when I was driving that I could buy a star and name it after me or yeah. name it after. Well, it's totally person. worthless. <laughs> yes, right. It, it makes of a course. nice gift, perhaps, to the yes. right person. But um, you know, it's it's worthless. They're doing the same thing with Mars. You can buy an acre on Mars from so and so. Right. Uh, I well, that really, might be an investment in the future. <laughs> if it right? had any legal uh, yes, ba- of backing or yes. legal basis. Now, you're a proponent of going back to the moon, right? When's yeah. the last time we were actually at the moon? Well, next year will be uh, 50 years since we first got to the moon. And uh, we went uh, over a period from 1969 to the end of uh, 1972 with the year 1970 not landing on the moon because that was the Apollo 13. Mm-hmm. It took a while before we got back to uh, lunar operations then again in 1971. Uh, so there were really only three years, 69, 71, 72, where we were on the moon. Six landings, uh, seven attempted, Apollo 13 being that successful failure mm-hmm. uh, where they didn't get to go uh, and land on the moon, but they got the crew back, thank goodness. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that was a really big deal for my generation. Uh, led to an enormous number of people wanting to be astronauts and, of course, eventually realizing, hey, we can't all be astronauts. Yeah. But we can, you know, it, it led us into careers in... Uh, science and engineering, medicine, et cetera, et cetera. It, it led a bunch of people to want to do things beyond uh, the norm, um, seeking to do certain things that were challenging. Yeah. And the thing is, we didn't finish the job. I mean, in the previous administration, the idea was, oh, we're not going to the moon. It may have been just because Bush wanted to go to the moon. I don't know. Uh, Administrations nowadays want to reverse the one before it. But uh, you said, well, we've been there, done that. No, we haven't done that. I mean, that was an absurd remark to make. Mm -hmm. Um, And go on and do an asteroid and then what? I mean, that that, that was not well thought out. NASA had a good plan proposed by people within the Bush administration, the second Bush administration, uh, to go essentially moon, Mars, and beyond. Taking steps, mm-hmm. building up the infrastructure as you go, and continuing to go further and further, paying as you go. Well, the only problem with that was the Bush administration didn't pay. I mean, <laughs> right. so NASA got started on it, but they didn't have the funds for it. It was a logical progression. Obama comes along and he cancels the whole Constellation program mm-hmm. and comes up with the asteroid redirect mission, uh, which could be better done by robots anyway. Um, and said, well, we'll go eventually go to Mars. Well, people have been saying we'll eventually go to Mars since we landed on the moon the first time. Right. But, okay, circuitously getting back to your, your question. The thing is, for many people like myself, uh, because we didn't do the moon right, we stopped just when we started knowing what to do. Uh, I want to go back because of a couple of things. I want to see us back on the moon before I die, uh, because we, chances are we're not going to get to Mars before I die. Right. Um, and I want to see us set up to go to the moon to stay. And that can help spur us on to go to Mars. If we do the Apollo type of thing, which was still a wonderful thing, but I mean, if we try to do the Apollo thing with Mars, we'll go there, we'll plant the flag, we'll visit six times, and then we'll wait 50 years before we go back. Uh, that's not a sustainable space program. And the other thing is, okay, when you tell kids about going to Mars, it gets them excited, but then they look up in the sky and they say, where is Mars? You can't see it very well. Even with a decent telescope, you can't see it very well. But at night, you can go out and you can point, hey, 
there's people up there on the moon. And mm-hmm. uh, that can get kids interested again uh, in going on. And maybe they say, I want to go to the moon, but I want to go on to Mars, too. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's going to uh, be much more of a selling point to go back to the moon. And, of course, there's a lot of commercial aspects of that. Uh, the lunar soil has a lot of interesting things that we could eventually bring back. Um, and if we ever get fusion going again, mm-hmm. we need helium-3. Where's the best place to get helium-3 in our solar system? The moon. <laughs> you bring back one equivalent of a cargo bay of a space shuttle load mm-hmm. of lunar soil a year, and you've got enough to power the entire planet. I mean, so I mean, there's stuff to do on the moon other than just go around, happy geologists, and frankly, I find the moon more interesting than Mars. Mars is too Earth-like for me. The moon is where I want to see that beautiful landscape. Yes. And there's a lot of uh, unknowns when it comes to the moon, right? Yeah. Uh, you, you touched on something that's very important. It's, like, it's this idea that we have the moon figured out. We right? don't know what to and, and a lot of people have ideas about different things. Like, oh, we have that figured out. Why go there? Yeah. Uh, even things on Earth. Right, we we think about a lot of people think about the oceans, mm-hmm. and they don't realize how important it is to fund ocean exploration. Oh yeah, because we know so little about it. Mm-hmm. And the moon is very much the same way. We do know very little about the moon, and in fact, one of the big things we don't know is how the Earth Moon system formed. Absolutely, we have ideas about how the Earth Moon system formed, but we do not have anything definitive. And one of the ways we can get something definitive is by going to the moon and analyzing. Mm-hmm. The soil, by analyzing what the crust is like, by analyzing what's what the composition of the moon is. Is it Earth-like? Is it not Earth-like? Ha, uh, we can answer these questions only by going there and yeah. only by exploring. And so I, I do urge you as a listener to not think that we have the moon figured out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that might be one of the big societal pressures that keeps us from going back to the moon is the lack of interest. The idea oh, yeah. That, and you that, hear this... Um uh, phrase. I hope I'm, just, I'm paraphrasing it, but you hear this in a lot of different science programs or pseudoscience programs or science fiction programs. That uh, like uh, it says, oh well, we know more about the surface of the moon than we know about the ocean depths, mm-hmm. which is nonsense. The Navy knows an awful lot about the ocean depths. Right. Some of it we don't all know about ourselves because it's yes. it's, um, it's Navy uh, propriety, mm-hmm. but. Um, we've only been to six places on the moon, and the first two were chosen not because of their scientific interest, but because they were nice, smooth, safe places to land, stay for a short period of time, and come home. Right. Uh, the exploration of the moon really only started going with Apollos 15, 16, and 17, and then we stopped. Mm-hmm. Apollo 14 was a transition. Um, you could only go so far by walking. Uh, in fact, they had a, on Apollo 14, they had this little thing called the modular excursion, a modular equipment transporter. And NASA always has to have a, a special goofy name for things. And then, then they use an acronym. So it's the MET, which also stood for Mission Elapsed Time. But the MET was the modular equipment transporter, mm-hmm. which is essentially like a rickshaw. <laughs> it had the tools on it and places to put samples, and they just drug it along. Um, mm-hmm. That was not the best way of going across the surface. Then 15, 16, 17, went electric car, the lunar rover, which is mm-hmm. a really cool thing, especially for its time. Yeah. Um, Boeing built the lunar rover, and you could drive as far as you could hopefully walk back in case mm-hmm. of emergency to the lunar module yeah. if something happened to the electric car. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, you expanded your range. They went about 20-some miles over a course of three days of exploration. 
Uh, and so we really only got that in the last three missions where they're really scientifically interesting. And then we stopped because of a wide variety of reasons, mm-hmm. not the least of which we could say is temerity of our political leaders. Uh, because it would be get, get harder and harder for one thing in the era in which it was uh, occurring, 1972, Vietnam War, um, uh, other social needs and the like, saying, well, we're, we're going to also be giving a lot of this money to these crazy scientists who want to go and see the rocks on the moon. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you, you can always make a good argument for that in terms of the financial return and scientific engagement and a technological increase. You know, I, I love to say this one. You know, we end up uh, to go to the um, uh, Apollo 15's landing site and take a drill, uh, a core drilling uh, about uh, nine feet down into the surface. Uh, you couldn't take an extension cord from Houston all the way out to the moon's surface, so they invented the power pack that was capable for black black and Decker did this mm-hmm. uh, power pack for cordless drills. Yeah, I don't know what the profit margin has been over the years for cordless uh, tools. But they were invented yeah. in order to drill a hole in the moon's surface. Yes. Uh, there's there's no, no need for it. There's a that. lot of stories yeah. like this, though. Like uh, the, the famous story of the Internet uh, being a a big, uh, a, a big part um, of CERN, mm-hmm. right? Because back in the old days of CERN, you would have to carry these. And I talked to Nicole, actually, about uh-huh. this on a recent podcast. Uh, in the old days of CERN, when you had data, you had to physically transport it. Oh, sure. You had to carry it. You had to carry, and you had to hire people that would do this. They would yeah. have to carry the data and fly on a plane and come to America and distribute the data to the different places that it needed to be evaluated. Because so, you didn't have the internet to be able to send the data freely everywhere you wanted to go. Plus, there's something in the background there, not to get too morose, but... Planes could go down. Yes. <laughs> you don't want to lose that kind of data right. on, a, on yeah. a plane. Where And it wasn't as easy to make copies yeah. then. You couldn't just use a yeah. copier. No, right? that electronic uh, tape, which they still use in astronomy for correlators, mm-hmm. that um, that stuff was expensive and it's getting more and more expensive because it's not available anymore. Right. But, yeah, so, I mean, you have all kinds of issues like that. Yes. Um, that, you know, the uh, change in the technology driven by scientific need. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you could talk for hours and hours and hours, perhaps days, about how technology has been changed by the need to keep track of astronauts' health mm-hmm. in space yep. and to get them safely to and from the moon. And it's just, it's not something like you say, oh, well, hey, that thing over there, that's what we got from going to the moon. Uh, you know, critics will say, well, we went to the moon, we came back with rocks. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, those are pretty important rocks at the moment anyway. They're still uh, historical treasures. Yes. Hopefully the day will come when those original rocks will be just in museums and kept from the historical perspective. These are the first ones that came back. Yes. Um, But having rocks for study uh, will be no more of a big deal anymore. That we could actually have our own moon rock sitting here that isn't yes. worth a million dollars and mm-hmm. the feds would come and take us away if we happen to have a moon rock in our presence. Right. Yeah. <laughs> because we shouldn't. How important do you think the space race was, this idea of having competition to getting... Oh, it was absolutely necessary th- in and, that and, time period. And I'll add a, a part to the question. Do you think we would have actually got there yet had that competition yeah, not been I was going to go there too. Good, good point. The thing is, um, there would have been no particular need in the time frame of... Uh, the 60s to go to the moon from a purely scientific standpoint 
Congress would never have gone for that. Um, saying, oh, that's an interesting project. Uh, yeah, well, let's get behind that and spend, uh, now this is in their uh, dollars, $25 billion worth of money in. Let's make sure we get it done in eight and a half years. Um, and let's see, hmm. Well, maybe we could sort of like uh, get those Russian guys to see a racist to the moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, it was the uh, Cold War that that got it going. Uh, President Kennedy wasn't the least bit interested in space, at least not to begin with. Uh, but uh, he was interested in uh, the Cold War ramifications of mm-hmm. finding something that we could engage the Soviet Union um, without it being something where it was a hot war. Right. And, and he recognized that the technological challenges uh, would be something that could drive the country forward in that decade, which was something that was a big deal to him mm-hmm. in terms of his campaign in the 1960 um, uh, presidential uh, election. And the thing about the science, did he care about how the moon was formed? No, not the least bit. Did he care about getting rocks back from the moon to find out what's the amount of uh, potassium rare earths and uh, uh, other materials in the lunar soil relative to what we have here on Earth? Not in the least. Mm -hmm. He eventually came to have a romantic idea of traveling in space, and he often joked with the Mercury astronauts that he wished he'd be one of them going along on their, their journeys. And, of course, he died in 1963, never having seen, you know, what eventually was always remembered in terms of his challenge. Of the, we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I'm sorry. I usually try to do that with a Bostonian <laughs> accent, but I don't want to offend anybody who might be listening. So um, the thing is, if we had that circumstance today, a president comes forward and says, I want to challenge the rest of the world to get to Mars in the next 15 years be laughed off the stage uh, right. because there's there's no need for a competition. And in fact, it'd be stupid mm-hmm. going to Mars and actually returning to the moon should be an international thing uh, where uh, lots of countries uh, could be involved. Yeah, we could mm-hmm. take the lead. Uh, the Russians could be a major portion. The Chinese should be brought in. Um, I've been a big proponent uh, of getting the Chinese involved. There's always this issue about, oh, with a technology transfer. None of this stuff is classified. Right. I mean, um, they often talked about in the days of the Apollo, uh, what if the Russians find out about our stuff with spy? It, I, I could get it by writing to the NASA administrator and say, yes. as a 12-year-old kid, I'd like to learn about how the lunar rovers powered. Right. I got the information. Uh-huh. Uh, it, Pre-internet days, it was harder, but you could get that stuff. None mm-hmm. of this is, is secrets. Military stuff, okay, it's different. But we ought to engage the Chinese because engagement brings, you know, things close together. What did Nixon do? He brought the Russians in mm-hmm. on the end of Apollo with the Apollo Soyuz. If it weren't for the Russians, we wouldn't have an international space station. Right. Uh, it came within one vote of being killed in the uh, Clinton administration. And the only reason Clinton got it that close was because he wanted to bring the Russians on board as an mm-hmm. international project. And the Russians are indispensable in keeping the, uh, the International Space Station going. It should be, if we go back to the moon and on to Mars, it should be us, it should be the Russians, it should be the Chinese, the Japanese, the Europeans, even the Indians. Uh, Indian, uh, <laughs> not Native Americans, the part of an, uh, our right. country, of course. I'm yeah. talking about the Indian subcontinent because they do have a uh, strong desire to launch their own spacecraft. Mm-hmm. Okay, 
bring them on board. Wouldn't that be great if our first uh, voyage to um, Mars would have four people stepping off of the uh, lander, or maybe even more? Mm-hmm. One of them uh, an American, one of them a European, one of them a Chinese or Russian or Indian uh, national. Mm-hmm. Um, that'd be fantastic. Yes, That's the way you get it going, like we do with particle physics. Yes. It, I was going to say, it's very odd that in today's age of science, which is very much the collaboration age of science, yeah. there's no such thing as uh, small projects Big that science. exist anymore. Yeah. Uh, there's huge projects. Yeah, you it's, look, it's mega, mega, mega science. You now. look at LIGO, uh, if, you, if you actually look at the LIGO papers, mm-hmm. the initial papers that were published for, for the gravitational wave findings, the author oh. list... One the author the other. list and the references are longer than the, <laughs> the paper, paper itself. Yeah, that is the age of science we're in, and it's right. so odd that and that LIGO's not the only one, right? There are tons of collaborations yeah. on this size. Right. Uh, CERN is another one of them, mm-hmm. and uh, you look at all of the large radio interferometers across sure. the world; those are the same way. We are. I we keep have, drifting. Sorry, that's <laughs> no, fine. We have people working on these things from every country, from every continent. That's the way it should collaboration. be. Yes. My question, and the thing that I, I wonder is, is space travel not that way? Is space exploration not that way because of how closely it seems to be tied to politics? Oh, well, that's an interesting question. Um, because you don't see this kind of collaboration in politics. You see it in science that is outside of the realm of politics. Well, to back up to just being within the United States... Um, our space program, the civilian space program in particular, has suffered for quite some time in the post-Apollo period uh, because of um, us versus them political party um, affiliations. Sometimes people will cross the aisle and work together in um, the sense that, well, if money's going to my state, and I'm in the opposition party, I'll go for spending the money on spaceflight uh, because it brings the bucks back to uh, my residence. Uh, but, you know, just to pick one over the other, let's just say if we had a Republican administration during X years mm-hmm. uh, and they proposed this grandiose space program, the, uh, the Democrats would go against it. And of course, vice versa. Right. Simply because, well, we're spending the money on that. What we should be doing is other stuff because mm-hmm. it's it's something you, it's easy to sell in town halls. Yeah. So, you know, crazy scientists wanting to spend money trying to talk to the aliens. You know, you know, the way it gets misrepresented. Right. Um, there's no competition with the other nations of the world that mm-hmm. drives. Well, we've got to do this to survive as a country. Uh, there was that aspect to Apollo, yeah. even though it was nonsense. That really wasn't. You know, something would was as, as existential in mm-hmm. keeping a, our country uh, alive and well. Um, technologically, yeah, okay, but I mean, it, we could have survived the '60s without mm-hmm. going to the moon. Yeah, um, uh, but it was the per, it was the time where everything fell into place. Right. Not that there weren't uh, people uh, who were against it politically. Mm-hmm. There were, but the most they got drowned out mm-hmm. uh, by and large. But uh, today we got that problem. So you, you got it at home. Mm-hmm. Then trying to do it internationally, nations squabble. Right. <laughs> Who does what? Okay. Does the do the Russians build the lander to go back to the moon? Mm-hmm. Uh, we build the um, big rocket. Do the Chinese 
develop um, a hab on Mars, you know, yeah. who gets what and who gets the uh, the bigger portions of the overall program. We're still learning how to do that stuff. And I, you mentioned particle physics quite a bit. That's one place where we have a big success story. Um, we have figured out ways to get nations of the world to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, when we transfer that experience of international politics and science over to spaceflight, It'll move. Mm-hmm. Uh, will it happen in my lifetime? Uh, I still just want to get us back to the moon before I die. Right. I mean, <laughs> that's my thing. I was just thinking the other day, because it's timely for this time of year, that I was 16 uh, when uh, we were uh, first using that lunar rover on the moon, Apollo 15 mission. They landed a few days in advance of my birthday. They were on the moon uh, on my birthday. And I couldn't have been a happier camper to mm-hmm. turn 16. I mean, lots of people think of their 16th birthdays in other ways. But for me, it's, ah! It was my favorite landing site, too. The Hadley-Apennine region of the moon. Mm-hmm. Most gorgeous spot we looked at on the surface. Uh, nice plain full of craters of various ages. A uh, big mountain. Uh, the uh, Hadley Rill. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, it, you couldn't ask for a better spot uh, the lighting could have been a little bit different. <laughs> the pictures weren't as good as they could have otherwise. But they landed at a time when the uh, sun angle wasn't the greatest. But nevertheless, wow, what a great way to spend my 16th birthday. Uh, okay, well, I wouldn't mind seeing this go back and see that before I drop dead. Right. <laughs> um, and so that, that's, that's part of my uh, reasoning for going to the moon. But also, it would serve as a better way of getting us, I think, in my opinion anyway, uh, getting us um, internationalized. In terms of exploration, mm-hmm. uh, we've gotten together a little bit on exploitation. Mm-hmm. Um, Try not to hit the table so much. Oh, sorry. You jar the microphone. <laughs> no, it's fine. But I also have my hands going like crazy too. <laughs> um, I I think that we're on the cusp, and mm-hmm. the couple of things that could go the right way, and all of a sudden it, it can take off. Um, but there's a lot of this there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's uh, it's something that I think will happen. I think what's important is that it happens soon. Uh, Sooner th- would be better than later, yes. yes. One of the things that I'm not a fan of, personally as a scientist, is the way that NASA tends to utilize their budget for such big projects over such long periods. And I understand that they have to... It's the politics. They ha- it's It's that, and it's also that they... They have big projects in mind, and because they don't have that yearly budget that maybe some people would want them to have, and by no means is it small. I'm not going to say it's small, but uh, some people would like it to be bigger, and because they have the small budget, they have to stretch these programs over long periods. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if they could work, if they could do smaller projects uh, faster, I think that that would actually generate more interest. I think if people could see more stuff getting done, because we have this uh, this idea of putting the gravitational wave uh, detectors, the gravitational wave interferometers in space, and I think right now it's going to be 2035 is oh, the yeah. expected deadline. If that. That, I think, really motivates... I could picture myself as a young man uh, and looking at getting into this field. And if someone were to tell me, uh, oh, the next big thing in gravitational waves is going to be 2035, I would say... Well, what the hell am I wasting my time yeah, for? Exactly. Uh, you're not going to get uh, 
your graduate thesis done yeah. <laughs> working in this. And I, I really do think that, that the lack of stuff that gets done, it's for a good reason. It's because they try to stretch the budget. It's because they have big goals in mind. But I also think that it gives the illusion that we're not doing enough. Yeah, it's um, it's a situation of you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Um, for NASA to continue to be able to press with programs, they do have to have things that will span from one fiscal year to the next. Yes. Because it, it's really the, about the most disadvantageous way of doing science, as you can might, might imagine. Uh, it's the most democratic way, but it's the most disadvantageous way also, where every year you have to go up for your budget authorization. And so, all right, you get started on a project that might come along quicker and not necessarily have as big of a um, base of support, mm-hmm. um, you know, from ground-based gravitational waves. I mean, we got the detector uh, in uh, Washington. We got the detector in uh, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Louisiana and uh, Washington are big on wanting to spend that money. Yep. But uh, Vermont, does Vermont give a shit about uh, funding for a program like that? Probably not. Right. But, you know, if you can make it something that's more national, mm-hmm. which, oh, have to divert for a second. Uh, going back to the Apollo program, one of the things that made it possible for them to enjoy so much success, the money was spread across the entire country. There wasn't a single portion of mm-hmm. the country that didn't have something coming from the space program leading us to the moon. There was money spent everywhere throughout yeah. the country. Yeah, there were the big centers, California, Texas, mm-hmm. uh, Florida, New York, uh, etc. But everybody got yeah. a piece of the pie. Mm-hmm. And that's not the case with a small pro- project. Plus, you know, okay, if you don't see immediate results, well, then through the various committees of the you don't seem to have made much progress, young man, in the last year and a half. Have we spent how many millions on you? Uh, we think we're going to can you. Uh, yes. yeah. So, I mean, it, it's not conducive for that. But mm-hmm. also, on the other end, it does take longer than to get something done. And presidents get behind things, but they want to see things done before they leave office. Right. And so, okay, um, Bush had his go back to the moon, on to Mars, and beyond program. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't going to be around in D.C. when we got to beyond. Yeah. Um, Obama comes in and he says, well, we'll see. Is there anything we might be doing that could be done while I'm here? And I don't want to do what Bush did, so can that. And so NASA essentially was cycling money. Mm-hmm. And now we, we still managed to salvage a lot back from that. But the last eight years were kind of not fully used. I don't want to say wasted, but not yeah. fully used. And now we're back to the past mm-hmm. <laughs> with our future yeah uh, uh with uh, where we're uh, doing under the trump administration administration redirecting us back to the moon mm-hmm. uh so i mean you you can't just go for the small stuff right you can't only go for the big stuff correct and you have that every year budget nonsense mm-hmm. which it's not just nasa but research and development done at the government level it's a terrible way to get funded yeah uh, there has got to be something better, like maybe a three-year budget, yeah, a four-year budget, mm-hmm. so that would match up with an administration, right? Uh, even if it's only one on term, the mm-hmm. president's there for four years and he's back. This is what we got to do. Maybe the next successor would then follow on better, rather than starting over from scratch. Right. Um, so yeah, 
no competition like we had in Apollo. Mm-hmm. Not everybody getting a piece of the pie. Yes. The little stuff versus the big stuff. Changes in administration. That's been a major problem for NASA. Mm-hmm. And it gets blamed on NASA. <laughs> right. I mean, it's all D.C. Yes. NASA doesn't decide what it wants to do. Right. NASA doesn't decide how much money it gets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and NASA doesn't decide what money it gets, how it distributes it. Right. It's got to get approval. And the committee system in academia, in, in the, um, the commercial world, mm-hmm. and the government world is about as inefficient a way of doing yep. anything yep. as possible, but it sure beats dictators. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, I agree. And one of the things that really holds NASA back, I think, or any government-funded science, is the lack of scientists that are approving the budgets, mm. that are reading the reports, because we truly don't have many scientists in Congress. We don't have many scientists in government in general. Uh, mm. This is just a personal opinion, but I think maybe, I mean, as bad as politicians are, mm-hmm. I mean, I have very low opinion of politicians, uh, especially uh, in the 21st century. Yeah. Uh, I was a, a big uh, fan of Bobby Kennedy, and I always wonder what would have happened if he had not been assassinated in 1968. Mm-hmm. Not that he was a big fan of the space program, different brother. Yeah. But uh, nevertheless... Um, I have, especially in the 21st century, not a high opinion of of uh, politicians across the board. That's why, although I'm a Democrat officially, uh, I'm ashamed of my party, what they've become. Me too. Uh, I consider myself an independent, and I vote yeah. person. Yeah. And I'm still not happy about most of the things right. that I do. Yes. But uh, the thing is, what might be worse than politicians? Scientists? Yes. You get a bunch of scientists together and try to uh, figure out what's the best thing to do. Mm-hmm. Academics too. Yes, you'd have a you'd love to see. Well, it's not so much these days, and it's not just here at my institution. But if you could go back in time and see what I'll just use this as an example, what faculty meetings were like in the 1980s yeah. and 1990s on this campus, mm-hmm. students would say. You know, I, I really thought I had some respect for that professor and that one. Right. But did you just hear what they said to each other? What, yeah. What? Mm-hmm. Um, no. Um, you talk about squabbling. Mm-hmm. Scientists always believe that what they do is the most important thing in the world. Of course. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. But we don't exactly uh, have the best skills at figuring out how to compromise. Um, so, no. Yes. <laughs> We're probably not the best... Mm-hmm. Um, to decide what goes on at the national level better right. than lawyers or politicians. Yes. Well, academia in itself has become a hornet's nest from what I can tell. Oh, it is. It's just yeah. everyone is trying to, to, to bite everyone else. The I, backstabbing is yes. incredible. I, it's, it's very much like politics. Uh, there's so much in politics right now, and this is why I'm ashamed of my party. That I'm also registered as a Democrat. Uh, I, I'm actually upset that you even have to register. I don't understand why you have to, to, yeah. to pick a... Re- well, they, here in Pennsylvania, at least when I registered, I yeah. don't know if it's still the, the case, but when I re- came uh, to Lycoming County and I switched from Schuylkill County person, boy, I went really far from home. Uh, but um, I, I it was asked, what party affiliation are you? And I said, I prefer to be an independent. And he said, mm-hmm. well, then you can't vote in the uh, yes. uh, primaries. I said, well, okay, I need to vote in the primaries. And I thought about it. Uh, hmm. And at least in that time frame, mm-hmm. it meant something to have a Democratic 
uh, primary because generally speaking, uh, even uh, especially at the local level, like the Republican thing said, vote for five and there's three on the ballot. Yeah. I mean, there was really no point. So I thought, okay, um, I went that way. And I had basically been, like I said, from, um, I was not able to vote in 1968. I was still a 13 year old kid. Right. But, um, Bobby Kennedy was a, a big deal for me. Uh, ironically, so was Richard Nixon. I mean, I was on both ends of the fences here. Yeah. Um, but not that I condone what Nixon did, but in the end, but, uh, uh, I, I would prefer to be an independent. Yes. Me and too. And I, I, I frankly don't understand because I have political views, not to spend too much time on this, but okay. I have political views that I think are mostly in the middle, mm-hmm. but I have some that are on the far left mm-hmm. and also some that are on the damn far right. Yes. Uh, it seems to me that where you are politically should depend upon what the issue is. Yes. Yeah, this is uh, my biggest issue with because I tried registering as independent too. In New York's the same way. If you click the independent box, then it says you can't vote in the primary. Vote, yeah. So you got to pick something, right? Right. So I, I, I was, just like you, I went Democrat. Um, but here's my biggest problem with both of these parties, Republican and Democrat. They think they own the right to a yes or no question. Yeah. I don't like this. This is my biggest issue. Is that all right? So let's talk about the gun issue, right? Are you pro-gun or are you anti-gun? Depending on your answer to that yes or no question, do you think that citizens should be allowed to bear arms, you are already grouped into a party, right? Yeah. So my answer to that question would be yes, I think that citizens should be able to bear arms all the F they want. <laughs> I don't care. Okay? Right. I, I, I don't care. I think that there's some oversight that maybe is important. But at the end of the day, taking away all the guns is taking away an American freedom, and I don't yeah. want to take away any American freedom. Yeah. But then you say, okay, are you pro-choice or are you pro-life? Mm-hmm. Well, to that I would say I am pro-choice. Well, to me, that is saying the same thing, that I yeah. value the choices that people can make. Uh, but then you run into a contrast. Yeah. The fact that I answered one yes or no question and it put me on the far right. The fact that I answered another yes or no question and put me on the far, far left. left. Now, and then people look at you strange. Yes. And th- I agree with you with what you said. Your political leaning should be based completely on the issue at hand. Yeah. We are doing way too much grouping. I, I, I look at this. People look at the, the far right and the far left as a number line. Right? Mm-hmm. You're on the far right or you're on the far left or I guess for the viewers it will yeah. be the opposite way. Uh and both of those camps then ignore everybody in the yes. middle. But here's how I actually think that this political spectrum works. I don't think it's a number line. I think it's a circle. Okay? Hmm. And when you're on the far right, you're not over here. You're not off camera. You're at the bottom. And when you're on the far left, you're also at the bottom. Mm-hmm. And those two bottoms are the same bottom. <laughs> you are refusing to listen to another person's argument. You're refusing to take into account data. You're refusing oh, to... Yeah. to uh, just be receptive to concerns, to questions. And so people think that, okay, if we have far right people in, in office and we have far left people in office, that eventually we'll average out and we'll be somewhere in the middle. So nothing radical will get pushed anywhere. Right. But no, when you have far right people and you have far left people, you're at the bottom of the circle. Mm-hmm. And when you take the average of the bottom of the circle, you just get closer to the bottom of the circle. <laughs> you don't want to be down there. Yeah. You want to be at the you're top. You're circulating around. Yes. You want to be at the top of the circle. And so I think this far right, far left thing is not a number line at all. It is it is a circle. And when you occupy one of those sides and you allow it to dictate every decision you make, you are not doing the political system any favors. No. You're not doing democracy any favors. You're not doing humankind yes. any favors, it's, let alone it's, just the nation. I see it so often that people, they 
are more passionate about the answer to one yes or no question. So maybe they'll be on to the gun thing and Mm -hmm. they'll say, I'm Mm pro-gun. Don't let that decision dictate all of your decisions. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. I'm saying don't say, okay, I'm pro-gun, therefore I belong on the right, therefore I agree with all the things on the right. No. Mm -hmm. Analyze each of them. Where do you fit in each of them? And I think you'll find, and most reasonable people should find, that they belong somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. If they actually sit down and they actually think over the issues, then they they realize, okay, I might lean to some of the ideas on the right. I might be more conservative. I might be more liberal, what have you. And you'll find that you actually belong somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. And stop vilifying everyone who doesn't b- oh, yeah. agree with you. We've lost the um, understanding of what it means to argue. Yes. Um, well, we've turned arguing into yelling. Well, yeah. I mean, if, right? we, if we were arguing here, we'd just start fisticuffing. Yes. That, that's what today people think. Yes. If, if I argue a position and you argue a position, we have to be at opposite ends of things, and then it's just a shouting match. Yes. Um, this When I tell this to some of my students, they, they look at me like, huh? Uh, we used to have to do debates in high school, and the thing was, you did not have the choice of what side you were on. Right. Uh, I've heard, yes. In my day, you know, mm-hmm. it was the Vietnam War, you know, pro or con. And uh, at the time, I was definitely not for it, mm-hmm. but I was put on the uh, uh, side. I was assigned to the side to uh, defend mm-hmm. the the Vietnam War. And the goal was you get the better grade if you win the debate. Uh, yeah. And, well, I don't know why, but I, I got made leader of my side. Mm-hmm. And I uh, won the debate, despite the fact that I personally did not believe in you know, the, the right. war. Yes. I, I wanted to see it end, which is another, you know, odd thing because I was definitely for Nixon in that mm-hmm. time period with Bobby Kennedy not being available. And he had his so-called idea of ending the war, but he actually expanded it before, um, well, Watergate kept him from possibly ending it. But yeah. uh, anyway, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. But I had to argue a position I didn't believe in. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't me being a... What's the word I would use? Is semi-politically correct schmuck? Yeah. All right. No, I I had to take a bunch of facts that did exist, mm-hmm. make a logical argument to convince the teacher that that side was the better yes. side, even though on the inside I'm dying. Yes. <laughs> saying, yes. Uh, yeah, I did not want the killing to go on, be it civilian, be it um, uh, uh, combatants, uh, mm-hmm. whatever. Because after all, I had my uncle uh, Bill was over there. Uh, and I wanted him to come home. Uh, but we don't have the understanding of that word. To argue is fisticuffs. Yes. You know, it's not to have a discussion that is based upon logical discourse. Mm-hmm. Uh, wherein, I was thinking about something when you were, you were mentioning that, that your idea of the circle. Um, use a physics metaphor. And then you have a polarizer and an analyzer. Mm-hmm. And the light goes through uh, in one of them. And only that direction gets transmitted and everything else gets killed off. Yeah. Okay, so if this is one position and this is another one, things that will only go through in this direction or things will only go through this one, and you put them across, nothing, nothing gets through. Right. But if you have them at an angle where, you know, you're mm-hmm. somewhere in your middle of your spectrum of yes. the circle, mm-hmm. then there's, oh, leaning one way or leaning one way. Some light gets through. Yes. And that's what an argument is. Yes. Instead of this, which is what you have today, right. now you got this, mm-hmm. and some light gets through. Yes. If people listen to each other rather than hitting each other over the head. Correct. <laughs> yes. I, I had a very similar experience. My entire high school uh, education was useless. My high school was, <laughs> and that's indicative of probably the education system in America, useless. 
Uh, but um, except for some higher education, some higher education is okay until you get this liberalized, weird uh, climate that exists in some universities. Uh, but we won't talk about that. My point is <laughs> different uh, podcast. My point is in uh, it, uh, my entire high school education was useless, but one, but my my composition class was uh-huh. very useful. My composition perf- uh, teacher was was uh, the only, maybe only reasonable person in the entire. Dep- I hope for her sake she's not there anymore. I hope for her <laughs> sake she's moved to something she better. She went somewhere else and or or decided not to show up at work one day. But uh, one of the things she did was she had us uh, look at world issues, okay? And we look at the world issue and we write down on a piece of paper what our stance on that issue is, mm-hmm. okay? And then we do exactly what you talked about. We argue the opposite stance. Ah, to see it from the other person's point of and view. And the, the idea is that when you do that, when you make it a game, when you set out to prove the opposite viewpoint right, you realize there's merit to both views. You realize that the way you're looking at it might not always be the only way to look at something. And you start to gain respect for people who look at something differently. Mm-hmm. And that's something – and I think social media – uh, is really bad for that because I think what you do in social media is you create an echo chamber yeah. based on the friends you have. And so it's really hard to be able to look at someone else's perspective when you're on Twitter or when you're on mm-hmm. Facebook because the people that you associated yourself with are the people who believe the same thing as you. Yeah. And so uh, you create this environment where everything you scream just gets repeated back into your ears mm-hmm. and you can't change your view in that way. And I actually think that's why you see a lot of uh, – Regardless of if you think that that Russian uh, uh, hackers in any way influence the election mm. or in any way influence the election for one particular person, uh, the point is that they existed, uh, these – and not necessarily Russians, right? But people online that weren't necessarily <laughs> who they say they were, yeah. that were trying to jar up controversy by, by posting uh, ridiculous statements – uh, and it and gee, works. When was the last time the United States ever tried to affect an, out, the outcome of an election in some other country? Um, what time is it? It's yeah. uh, nine. Oh, it's nine eleven. How fitting! 9/11. Yes. Uh, so the last time would probably be nine ten p.m. on this very day. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. Our hands are not exactly clean. Yes. No. And and that's the nature of of world politics, I guess. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, the, the point is that you should be receptive to other ideas. And that's what's so important about science. And it's so weird that scientists are not that way. Yeah. I know a lot of scientists in my field that will not listen to your arguments when it comes to, to not just politics, but, you know, a different way of looking at something. Mm-hmm. Even when it's related to science. Yeah. Even if you say, maybe you shouldn't be trying to solve that problem this way. Maybe you should attempt it another way. Mm-hmm. Even if you give them a good suggestion, some of them are not receptive to it. Yeah, especially if it's not their idea. Uh, I mean, the history of science and physics in particular, too, is, is really full of that. I mean, you probably remember some of the things I would say in modern physics from the history of physics about ideas of graduate students in the early days when graduate students didn't get their due mm-hmm. uh, recognition for the work that they did. Yes. Um, it, it's, it, and still to this day, it's very important. What I'm getting at is that you've got to be careful when you pick your advisor mm-hmm. that they be receptive to your development, yes. your ideas, mm-hmm. rather than you just essentially being somebody working under them for them. Yes. Uh, because you could find yourself in a situation where you're working on your research, you come up with a grand idea, 
that really does not fit with uh, your advisor's mm-hmm. um, way of looking at the overall project yes. and you butt heads mm-hmm. and eventually you have to have a parting of the ways and you come off screwed uh, because they'll still have their grant, mm-hmm. but you came away without your advanced degree yes. and wasted a bunch of years. And then you try to go somewhere else and they say, well, why didn't you finish your degree elsewhere? Eh, well, I didn't get along with my advisor. He did listen to my advice. Uh, he or she didn't listen to my ideas. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, it's not as bad as it used to be, right? By any means, uh, but you gotta still to this day be very careful about who it is that you pick uh, to do your research with at a major university to, to go on for your advanced degrees, and especially so in physics. Yes, yeah. I uh, I was on a telecon recently, and uh, I won't mention any names, but there was a, they were discussing a specific project, um, and it was a large telecom with a bunch of collaborators and talking. And generally on these telecons, most people don't talk, right? They just kind of listen uh, because it is it is very much a hornet's nest in oh, some cases. Yeah. Uh, especially when you're talking about like a LIGO telecom where there will be tons and tons of people on the, mm-hmm. on the line. Uh, so most times you just sit back and listen. And uh, there was a, a scientist who who had an idea about how something worked and uh and another a few other uh physicists were saying okay let's let's test it here's how i propose to test it and this person was coming up with ideas that would knowingly validate their bias uh-huh that's not how an experiment is meant to be done. <laughs> no. You don't create an experiment to prove a bias. a bias. You are meant to devise an experiment that is unbiased. To let nature show what it does. Yes. And so, and whether or not he was doing it consciously, I would say probably not. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times you aren't necessarily setting out to validate a bias. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't, I would say that a lot of times it's, it's subconscious, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that you wouldn't realize it. If someone sat you down and said, okay, this is your idea and this is what you're proposing, you can clearly see you were trying to validate a bias. And if you're receptive to hearing that, then maybe you would you would say, oh, damn. Yeah, that was a bad idea. But uh, most people don't get sat down and told that, especially yeah. when they're a senior scientist who's been in the field for 45 years. Right. Uh, and so it. my point is that these ideas, they don't just exist. Too many people I see, it's like, uh, if you're a Donald Trump supporter, you're stupid and you're yeah. from Alabama. Yeah. Uh, or if you're a Hillary Clinton supporter, then you're a homeless guy in New York City. Uh, <laughs> but the, the, and chances are if you are in New York City, you are homeless because that place sucks. But, uh, <laughs> oh, um, oh boy. Okay. Yeah. I'm glad it's your podcast, not <laughs> and, mine. <laughs> and, and even if you are living in an apartment in New York City, it probably looks like a dump. Move out of that city. There's 12 million people. Get going. You don't need to be there. Uh, anyway, Jesus Christ. You and I both like the country better. Yeah. yeah. Even Rochester's bad. Really? There's a million people there. In I the, haven't been there in, in a long time. In the metropolitan area, there's a million. Mm-hmm. It's been dwindling, right? Uh-huh. Because a lot of the big, uh, big corporations that were there in the 80s, 90s are no mm-hmm. longer there. They're kind of dying like... Uh, uh, what's the camera? The disposable cameras. Oh well, Gosh, well they, they, they had Kodak. East Kodak, Kodak, yes, Polaroid. Kodak. Kodak. They, they were big in Rochester. Uh, Kodak in is day. huge, yeah, and and so digital and film. <laughs> yes, yeah. film and digital cameras are both not really. And they also had Stromberg Carlson. Nobody yes. knows what Stromberg Carlson was from Rochester, but my father used to have to go up there. He worked for uh, an independent telephone company that, by the time he retired, was owned by Verizon. But mm-hmm. uh, he was a telephone man who did everything back yeah. when there really were telephone companies, mm-hmm. uh, and. Uh, he would, from time to time, be sent to 
be trained. Yeah. And they would be sent to be trained at Stromberg Carlson, who uh-huh. made the phones uh, for uh, some of the systems that were used throughout the country. Mm-hmm. Um, Bell's, I think, well, don't quote me on this one, but I think maybe uh, the Bell system was actually made by Stromberg Carlson, but most people wouldn't know that. Mm. And I may be wrong on that yeah. one. Monroe Muffler Brake was founded in. Oh, yeah? Yeah, because Monroe comes from Monroe County, which okay. is the county that Rochester's in. So. There you go. You have a break, cameras and brakes uh, and apparently a <laughs> and lot to do with telephones. Yes. The kind that you um, held like this. Yes. See, <laughs> RIT, the, the university I'm associated with, they were smart because they realized there were too many people going to Rochester. So they packed up entire campus and moved it like 30 miles south oh. or, well, maybe more like 15 miles south. But So they're not directly in the city anymore. So I don't okay. have to deal completely with people. But now they're next to the airport. So mm-hmm. all day long there's airports flying over. And there's people all the time getting in trouble for flying drones. Oh, dear. Not knowing. At the airport? Well, next to the airport. Not realizing that, of course, you shouldn't be flying drones there. But uh, I digress. Uh, My point is that the the political climate, and and this is related to the scientific Oh, scientists are political, too. Yes. Whether it's politics political. Mm -hmm. You deal with that all the time. Real quick uh, story from my days in uh, grad school. We had this... um, well, we, we were involved with metallic glasses, especially amorphous ferromagnets, back in the early days of this uh, uh, area of research. And it looked like it was very promising, but we ran into a snag. Mm-hmm. 30 years went by before it now again is a big uh, area. But we had this way of explaining how uh, magnetic moments could be arranged uh, in a uh, amorphous structure mm-hmm. and still yet have a bulk magnetization for materials. Uh, that was very, very different from someone else who shall remain nameless uh, at a larger university than we were and had sort of cornered the publishing market on some of this. Mm-hmm. And his ideas, we thought, were nonsense. Yeah. Uh, and you put in your papers that it didn't say anything about that way of explaining things. And it would always come back from the reviewer. You weren't supposed to know who was reviewing your paper, but... It always came back with this. You should really reference so and so's paper, mm-hmm. and we knew that's who was actually reviewing it. Yeah, uh, and so we said, "All right, all right, we'll swallow our our distaste for mm-hmm. the idea, and we'll put some things in there. We won't say we think this is garbage. We'll just refer to it, leave it hanging, that it's not part of our explanation, and move on." Mm-hmm. And when we did that, we always then got our papers published. Yeah, um, but it just was irky that we yes. had to reference this stuff that we thought was crap. Yes. Uh, just in order to get mm-hmm. published. Yeah. Last, <laughs> so it's the politics. Of, yeah. Last I have a similar instance. Last year I was working on some work here actually uh, at like coming college. And we, we in our research we kept coming upon the same guy's name in the literature. <laughs> it seemed like this guy had done everything. everything. Yeah. It's like this one individual had done every single thing that we needed to look up. And that's great. He's very active. Uh, and we all noticed they were coming from the same journal. Uh, well, it turned out that when we searched his name, he was the chief editor of said journal. Oh, no. And so... That's you, not good. And so you do have a very political climate even in in, in science. That's uh, really not very good. Yeah, well, you know. Oh, boy. It's, yep. When you're the editor and you publish all your papers? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I assume, I assume you know, he shifts them off to a referee somewhere, but who's going to tell the, the editor, the editor, chief editor, yeah. that uh, maybe maybe that's not good enough? Whoa. Uh, so there is some 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 interesting stuff that that goes on even in the world of science. So uh, don't think that we are a group of very unbiased individuals. I myself try to be, and I know a lot of people in the field do try to be, but sometimes it's unavoidable. Yeah. 
Sometimes even you'll do it and you won't notice it, right? No oh, one's yeah. perfect. Uh, sometimes you'll you'll be biased and and not know it, uh, and that happens a lot to me. All uh, I'm I'm very good at uh, analyzing myself, right? So I'm very good at if I'm being a dumbass about something, become mm-hmm. uh, realize it. Yeah, maybe I'll be a dumbass for a little bit, you know, like yeah. a day or two, but I I am introspective enough that eventually I'll notice that maybe I should change that aspect of myself. And so I'm very grateful for that, mm-hmm. but a lot of people don't have that introspection. Well, and, the thing is, I don't think a lot of people, especially now, and I'm not getting into this cupcake, marshmallow, whatever, business about the millennials. That's nonsense. That's cupcake. a stupid... Oh, you know oh what I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah what, what, I, just, I yes. said it wrong. What is it? Uh, snowflake. Snowflake. Yeah, the snowflake yes, of course. Phenomena. Yeah, that, that is stupid. I mean, that um, that's, that's, that's a ridiculous thing. But nevertheless, I think it has something to do with that because everybody gets a participatory prize. Yes. Nobody is told they're wrong mm-hmm. <laughs> when yeah facts can prove you are wrong. Mm-hmm. Said, oh, that's an interesting idea. Yeah, no, it's garbage. Yes. You know, but you can say that without destroying someone's mm-hmm. you know self ego or whatever the appropriate term. Uh, uh, <laughs> thing is, people don't have a need to introspect because they're told they're wonderful. Right. And yes. again, that has nothing to do specifically with millennials. It's yes. just it's society today. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is a big reason we have a lot of science denialism mm-hmm. in today's age. Because people start to get this idea that they're allowed to have their a, own ideas, their own opinions on something a- that fact. is fundamentally not opinionated. Yeah. Right? Like the, the earth being spherical or flat. <laughs> that is fundamentally not an opinion. You're not allowed to have that opinion. Yeah. And if you do have that a lot of and if you do have that opinion, if you believe the earth is flat, then you're not allowed to use your cell phone. Then you're not allowed <laughs> to drive your car. You're not allowed to use any of the fruits of the labor of the scientists who because the earth is round were able to design these things. Your GPS would fundamentally not work <laughs> if the earth were a flat That's thing. So, uh, so you and it's everywhere. It's there's a lot of science denialism in, in the age, and I do think it's because of that. Mm-hmm. It's because we give everyone their their opportunity to express their ideas. And because they have an opinion, it must therefore be validated. Yes. Uh, yes. self-realization and other words. Yes. And it's great to express your ideas, but also be receptive to the fact that... that you can be wrong. When you say certain stuff, you are not right. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I like what you, you said. Eventually, I realized I'm a dumbass. I mean, I, I, I've come to realize I thought I had some great ideas, only to come to a couple of days later, oh, what a dumbass. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe I made that mistake. Uh-huh. Um, just one funny story from grad school. There was this problem that, you know, pre-internet, pre-digital computers, uh, one of the first computers I ever got to use was a Commodore 64. Uh, but before that... It, a lot of calculations in quantum mechanics go on for 12 pages, line after line after mm-hmm. line. And there was this one I just kept not getting to the right answer at the end. It was driving me nuts. Where was I making this mistake? And I used to try to process things while I was sleeping. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was at home uh, visiting my family and I uh, was sleeping upstairs. I scared the crap out of my dad because uh, I no longer had a bedroom anymore. So when I came home, I'd be with my dad and my mom yeah. got the couch. And, uh, <laughs> and I uh, just woke up out of bed at like 3 in the morning and zipped on down to the uh, table. And I start writing and writing and writing because uh-huh. I thought I had found where my minus sign error was. Yeah. And he comes down, are you all right? 
And I, the first thing I say to him, oh, shit, because I thought I had it right in, mm-hmm. in my mind while I'm asleep. And then yeah, there's that same damn error popped up again. And, yeah. and he just sort of looked at me like, my son. Yeah. All of my, all of my problems tend to be solved uh, um, right before sleep. Mm-hmm. If I'm having, if I'm hung up on something, uh, whether it be, think about it while you sleep, and you might figure it out. Yeah, wh- why, whether whether it be an actual scientific problem, a problem with a code I'm writing or something, or whether it be a life problem, mm-hmm. right? I find that it's always solved right before I'm, I'm about to fall asleep. <laughs> I don't know why, I, and I've talked to other people about this, uh, uh, colleagues of mine who are like. I cannot figure this problem out. And it just comes to them when they're not doing mm-hmm. something related to, to the field at all. When They'll be like out riding their bike oh, or, yeah. or playing a game of tennis or something. And all of a sudden it's just there. It pops yeah. in your head. And um, it's very interesting how how the, the brain works like that. And I'm going to be having someone on the podcast next week, which I mentioned to you before, who will hope, hopefully shed some light on that idea mm-hmm. of, 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 of ideas just sort of popping into one's head. Mm-hmm. Uh, because... It, it it truly is. You you will be working on a complex problem, and and in your case it wasn't successful, but in yeah. some cases it can be successful. Well, usually it was. Yeah, I, ah, that's how it works. Yes. Yeah, but then again, you know, you, you you come up with all kinds of ideas. And the nice thing about my graduate school experience was I had the perfect advisor for me, mm-hmm. uh, and I had come to trust what he said as gospel mm-hmm. uh if he said something it probably was a good idea you should follow it yeah and if it wasn't for him i wouldn't be sitting here talking to you mm-hmm. because i was not planning on applying to like coming college and he caught me just before i went on an interview to an institution which will remain nameless that i wasn't interested in and which gave me a job offer on the interview yeah and i'm thinking oh i don't want to come here but um now i have a job offer but anyway if it wasn't for him saying I think you'd fit in at Lycoming College very well. I said, well, you know, I, I have to hit the road and go. And mm-hmm. before you go, send off your application pre-internet. You know, yeah. I'd sit down, type, blah, 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 mm-hmm. put it in the mail. Uh, so I delayed me on the trip. But I had this this great advisor. So I had sometimes, and especially more so in my master's program mm-hmm. days, when I was just learning really how to be a scientist, and I, this is a great idea. And then I'd pitch the idea before him. And I could tell when I wasn't doing so well at yeah. because he'd look up over top of the glasses mm. and he had this great way without wrecking my ego and saying, he called me professor when mm. he wanted to say, yeah, I don't think you got that right. Yeah. He said, I think you've got to really think that thing through again, professor, <laughs> <laughs> in a nice Tennessean mm. accent. Uh, it was it was great. He, he was quite the gentleman and, and quite the purveyor of letting you know on, on no uncertain terms. That's not right. Yeah. <laughs> but he'd say, I think you need to rethink that there, yeah. Professor, yeah. Uh, and uh, come back and let, let me know what you come up with. And so, what, what years did you go to graduate school? Oh, let's see. Uh, college was 73 to 77. I went right into grad school. 83, 80 got my master's, 83 my PhD, and a year uh, as a postdoctoral fellow at the Bartol Research Foundation of the Franklin Institute, mm-hmm. which was still working on the same project. It was my PhD, but I got a paycheck of a little bit higher stipend from mm-hmm. this office instead of from that office on the same floor. Um, so what was your and, What was your PhD? What was your stipend during your your PhD? If you don't mind, <laughs> no, I'm I just curious. I don't mind. I think it's uh, very. I don't mind. Um, and because I'll, you were, I'll, t- you I'll were, also tell you my first salary here. Uh, I don't think I'll, since it's so long ago, I don't think that would uh, cause any consternation to administration on campus. Um, my stipend, 
I, I, I had two, before I made up my mind, I had two uh, graduate school offers. One of which I had, would have met two faculty members who ultimately came here mm-hmm. if I'd gone there. One in biology, one in chemistry in uh, uh, Miami of Ohio. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was about uh, 10 hours away from home, whereas Delaware was only two hours away from home. And the thing was, I chose to go to Delaware, partly on that, because of some family concerns we don't need to get into. But uh, Plus, I liked the, the campus and mm-hmm. the, uh, the program. And the thing was, they gave me, uh, I think, $300 more uh, than did Miami of Ohio. Uh, instead of $3,000, uh, I got 3300 uh, at Delaware. Now, I could make more and that's by yearly. doing summer teaching. And that's yeah. yearly. Yeah, and we, we did that. A lot of us uh, uh, cleaned up a little bit more by teaching in the summer. Well, we also were doing our research mm-hmm. and trying to have a life too. But uh, then when I got the job offer here, because keep in mind that number went up a little bit uh, mm-hmm. over the years, but it still was <laughs> closer to 3000 than it was to the number I'm going to give you in a second. Uh, when uh, Dr. Erickson called me and told me what the salary was, it was $2,000 less than what I had as the offer from this other institution. Mm-hmm. And I, I tried to play a little bit of um, one institution after the other. I said, uh, I do have a better offer at so-and-so, without saying the numbers. And uh, he didn't know that it was $2,000, which, again, back in 84 was a bigger deal than it is now, mm-hmm. at this uh, other institution. And he said, well, I'll see what I can do. That poor soul. <laughs> he had conversations with people in long haul to get me an extra $750. Mm-hmm. And he thought he'd really done something. And what I w- wouldn't have told him at the time, but I think you remember I mentioned years down the line, I would have given up $750 to come here instead of going to the other place. My, my first salary here was $17,750. And I was thinking, what the hell am I going to do with all that money? Yeah. <laughs> because as a graduate student, especially back in that era, I had no idea about real life expense, expenses mm-hmm. other than what I needed to get by. Right. Um, yeah, the stipend was just enough so that by the end of the month, you had a bunch of nights where you're doing a macaroni and cheese out of the box yeah. uh, until you got your, your, your uh, next uh, paycheck. But, you know, you, I left with owing nothing mm-hmm. and having nothing. Right. Um, so started out here perfectly, and I thought, hmm, oh, gee, I made a list of all the things I would do within the first six months. Mm-hmm. I still haven't done some of them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, I had no idea what things were all about in terms of total costs in the real world. Yeah. Because of my whole focus from age six, 13 mm-hmm. on was going to college, going on to graduate school, and eventually doing something in science. Yes. And now I was, and I had to think, oh, what is it to buy a car? Because mm-hmm. I always had the uh, use of a family car and yeah. other things. And I had no idea that it's not just you buy the car. There's all these other things. Yes. Uh, so, you know. Well, scientists, that's another reason why scientists shouldn't necessarily be the ones deciding governmental things. Mm -hmm. We don't know always what all the cost ramifications are. Yes. And I still can't balance a checkbook. (laughs) I work by looking at the finite differences between (laughs) one one monthly statement and Mm -hmm. another. As long as I have the bank saying I have more in my favor from the last one than I had before, I know I'm not going to bounce checks. Yes. But I'm off by like $10,000 <laughs> over the last 30 years. That might be an issue. There might be someone who's, yeah. who's making a lot of money off you. Um, uh, but I, balancing checkbooks, I don't even know how necessary it is anymore. Well, yeah, With it's online banking. And, yeah, and, I, well, and I don't do that. But, <laughs> yes. But, 
Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, we're now, not the best with managing money. Scientists, yes. Now with my iPhone, I can pull my iPhone out and I can sign into my bank account with my thumbprint. So <laughs> that's the world we're living in now. We don't need to balance checkbooks anymore. We got. Yeah, I'll still yes. go out into the uh, whatever is the next dimension uh, with a checkbook in hand. Yes. Um, I still prefer knowing I've written that check, even if I don't know what my balance really uh-huh. is. Yeah. I just know that I'm ahead, so that I've, I'm not going to bounce the check. Yes. But in many regards, I do like things not so electronic. For one thing, mm-hmm. I much prefer talking to people in person. I hate talking on the phone. I, the phone. Oh. I, I'm, not, I, I'm not against talking on the phone. I face hate texting. Texting, texting yeah, makes me want to jump out. We're on the second story. I wish you were on the third, and then it would make me want to jump out the yeah. window. I hate texting. There's no contextual background of what you're saying. It's the it's got to be the most inefficient way to communicate. Too, you got to press every little button mm-hmm. you want. I, I, my iPhone's pretty good at knowing what I want to say next. Now mm-hmm. I could pretty much just click the middle button on my on the suggested words, right? So if I just type I and then I click the middle button on suggested words, I could pretty much have a whole conversation that's coherent. Okay. My iPhone is is quite good at doing that, but I just hate texting. So I guess not everything that came out just circle back. That came out of the space program was necessarily good. No, some some of it was <laughs> cell I, phones I could do without. Yeah, I mean, at least I used to say that. Now I actually do have a smartphone. Yes, uh, I love GPS. Mm-hmm. I will say that I, I really like GPS. Not necessarily to get me places, because getting most places is fairly easy. Uh, you mm-hmm. just follow signs, yeah. right? That's uh, old fashioned way of doing things, but nevertheless, it works well if you can read. Uh, uh, but uh, GPS is great because it has uh, traffic prediction. Mm-hmm. That's what I really like about it. You can then predict the route you want to take. So rather than maybe yeah. driving directly through Boston, your GPS is great at getting you a route around Boston mm-hmm. in a timely manner. That's one thing I am a big fan of. And guess what, people? GPS wouldn't work if the Earth was flat. Unless, <laughs> of course... Uh, there's a giant conspiracy for all of the people who have created cell phones along the past 50 years. <laughs> of course. Yes. Uh, you can always come up with a conspiracy to get right. around uh, the uh, illogic of uh, non-facts. Yes. Uh, but what's going on? Is anything going on? Fun in your life? What are we doing? Oh, uh, How is everything going? I have uh, issues with regard to my mother's health care that are really... Um, burdensome i wish things were better for her health but i also it's it's hard to deal with being 100 miles away and it's, it's just is keeping me from doing a lot of the things that uh well at this stage of my life i ought to be doing yes. um like watching that damn moon landing get on it people <laughs> yeah i uh this is the highlight of my day <laughs> today i mean there's a bunch of things i don't care to get into too much personal like that but uh uh, my mother had a second stroke while I was out in South Dakota, uh, trying to have my first vacation in six years. Did you eat bison while you were out there? Oh, yeah, and drank lots of sarsaparilla, okay. uh, which the F, uh, uh, the Food and Drug Administration has declared as a poisonous substance. I, I still can't get over that one. And marijuana still legal. Yeah. It's 2018. But somehow in South Dakota, they have sars- sarsaparilla still. And I told the locals out there about you can't get it. They said, "Why not?" Well, it's considered they probably poison. They probably haven't tried to order anymore since like well, 1980 it, or something. I, maybe, maybe not. Maybe the only person that drinks. The thing it. is, it, Sioux City. Uh, there's a Sioux City, Iowa, and there's also a Sioux City, South Dakota. I stayed in. Sioux and, City. Uh, oh no, I stayed in Sioux Falls. Sioux, but yeah, I, I, yeah so, you're right. Sioux Falls. Sorry, Sioux Falls is, and Sioux City. Um, Sioux City uh, soft drinks mm-hmm. 
Yeah, you can get them anywhere. And yeah. In fact, at Wegmans down the road here, mm-hmm. I used to get my sarsaparilla and root beer and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, I figured uh, Wegmans did to me what they often do. If I like something, they'll discontinue carrying it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sarsaparilla disappeared. And then I found out why a couple of years later, because I couldn't find it anywhere else. The FDA decided uh, it was uh, a carcinogen because it has some connection to chemicals and rat poison. Uh, but Native Americans were using the sassafras root. Yeah. And people still do sassafras tea and sarsaparilla, sassafras, mm-hmm. the connection there. And also sassafras is involved with rat poison. Mm-hmm. So they killed it. And I'm like, what? But out in South Dakota, they still had some Sioux City product mm-hmm. of sarsaparilla. And I went apeshit in the uh, the camping uh, store saying, oh, my God, I'm buying six packs like crazy, yeah. downing one after the other in my cabin at night um, and just st- enjoying it. Did you start to feel like a poisoned rat? Well, I, I was enjoying the rat poison. But okay. <laughs> I told them in the store about this, and they thought I was nuts. Mm-hmm. I said, you can't get this anywhere else. <laughs> so I, I don't know where you have it, but uh, this isn't in the stores. Mm-hmm. Well, and South I, Dakota is like a different place. And I looked it up online right. and I showed it to him. I said, here, consider it a, a poison. Yeah. See, you're um, using your phone. Yeah, I know. God have mercy on me. <laughs> in the most beautiful place on earth. Well, one of the most beautiful places on earth. At least a place where I think I leave my soul every time I, I uh, have to go. But, um, yeah, I, I was... I was out there for just a few days, and mm-hmm. I got the call in the middle of the night that my mother had a second stroke and had to drive back in two days. Um, so, I mean, I, I'm not entirely in a great place in my personal life right now. I see. Um, well, hopefully we can get that moon landing underway. Before I drop yes. dead, yeah. Or, yeah. or before I end up being yeah. in the situation similar to Well, you mother. still move quite quick, so I don't know if you're going to drop dead anytime soon. Well, you still, yeah. you, still, he, he, you still move. As many yeah. people know, I have a number of... Uh, started listing i don't have enough fingers or the medical issues i got but uh i should have been dead at 27 and I, i'm still moving around frankly my orthopedic guy would have uh, be shaking his head you can't do that because he told me i should never sit for more than 20 minutes at a time let alone drive a thousand miles in a day as i've done many many times uh since i had my back surgery in 94 uh so i, I don't know i keep trying but eventually things are not going to uh, be conquerable by the mind. Right. Body's gonna give some way or other, but uh, I, I try to do as much living as possible, and I should probably stay and scream. Hi there. <laughs> I, I didn't. I didn't drop dead. Or, actually, I, <laughs> yeah, was, no, that, I went back to South Dakota <laughs> in my mind. That might be a really good way to get podcast views if you drop dead drop on the dead. podcast. But I would prefer not to have to. Well, I mean, I, I have to have a little bit of sense of humor about it. I, I realize now, considering the circumstances, that I probably will. Not retire. I will probably uh, expire at the blackboard. Yeah. Uh, I, I unless health issues went seriously downhill and I couldn't do the product anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, I probably have to at least work till age seventy, and I, I'll continue to joke with my students. Right. If I fall over at the blackboard, just cover me with some leaves and mm-hmm. go do your homework. Yeah. The next guy will grade it or. Yes. Uh, I thought that uh, uh, there's another uh, professor that that works alongside uh, Dave here. Uh, Richard Erickson, and and one time uh, as an undergrad, I was uh, sitting in in one of his classes, and uh, he fell asleep. He fell asleep while teaching, and I thought that maybe he had expired. Oh dear God! But oh, no, no, he just uh, you know he, yeah. he he was he must have been tired that day, and he just decided uh, to take a take a quick nap. And college professors are 
unusual creatures. Uh, not that there aren't other unusual creatures in the world. I love to take a good laugh at myself. Yeah. I did fall asleep a couple of times. Not necessarily get this closer to this age than necessarily younger. Mm-hmm. I was actually relatively young in my career, and I um, students insist that I fell asleep standing up at the blackboard lecturing. And I was just out for like two, three minutes. You might have I, just been thinking about something. No, no. It's it probably one of those instances where I'd been up for about 56 hours. And mm. um, twice in my life I was awake for 96 hours, and I don't recommend that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, No, I've done a lot of that uh, as a, as a yeah, teenager. Typical yeah. uh, uh, space scientist or any scientist for that matter. I was, one time I was awake for the 96 hours. It was the totality of the broadcast on PBS mm-hmm. of all of the Neptune encounter in Voyager 2. Mm-hmm. I not only recorded it, but I watched it live. Yeah. Didn't fall asleep. 96 hours. Uh, don't do that. Uh, and the, this is probably something like that. I'd been awake for a long period of time, uh, and all of a sudden it just phased out. Yeah. Didn't fall over. Wasn't leaning against the board or going out of camera view. Mm-hmm. And I just, after a couple of minutes, started going again. Yeah. Uh, you just you needed know, that power now. Just needed yeah. that two... Three-minute power nap. You mentioned it. You have a collection of space flight, I'll call it memorabilia, videos, mm-hmm. recordings, that might literally be unparalleled. Have, you might have more than any other living human being. It's Or possible. dead human being. It's possible. That, uh, I, let's just say it this way. I have one of the largest personal professional collections of things. I mean, yeah. there are people who have... Oh, there's some characters out there who've had more money than me who have mm-hmm. actually bought hardware. And um, they they have large pieces worth enormous amounts of money. But I got into it. Uh, okay, here's one of my first books. Uh, I got this at age five or six. Uh, I also had one that said all about rockets, both from mm-hmm. Random House. Fell in love with astronomy, fell in love with rockets uh, and spaceflight, the concept of that. Uh, very different book than what I teach Invisible Universe with. Um, this one says the universe is serene and peaceful and nonviolent. We know the universe is very violent. The most interesting stuff, high energy. Um, and the thing is, it started there collecting just simply paper, newspaper clippings. Mm-hmm. And from there, it went on at pre-internet days, uh, having to go to places, phone, write letters, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes misrepresent myself. Not on purpose, but if you send out something from grad school on letterhead, didn't identify yourself as a faculty member, they would assume you were a professor and they'd mm-hmm. give you stuff. I would send off to NASA, to various different uh, organizations, space research, space engineering, etc. And we amassed news broadcast tapes, the old audio cassettes, mm-hmm. from uh, originally reel-to-reels. And uh, it was the hardest thing you could possibly imagine, trading back and forth between similar mic- uh, similar-minded people. Mm-hmm. And uh, I do have a personal collection of space documentation and videotapes from the uh, pre-Sputnik era all the way to the present. Uh, and it's not just American anymore. It's international. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, people sometimes wonder, why are you watching uh, state-run Chinese uh, TV? Mm-hmm. Uh, fortunately, it's been taken off uh, dish, apparently. But I, for, I was enjoying watching the Chinese land a rover on the moon. Mm-hmm. Um recognizing where it's from and I keep that stuff I mean because not necessarily all the stuff is going to always be available indeed uh, Alan Shepard NBC lost its original stuff because they stored it in a bad place where water ruined the tape mm-hmm. uh, this was a, a, something called a kinescope back in that day and oh to, to make it even harder 
there was kinescopes, then there was umatic three quarter inch tape, mm-hmm. uh, and then eventually you had VHS kind of stuff, and now DVD, to, to etc. Mm-hmm. And thing was, you have to change from one format to the other. Uh, you had to have something called a film loop in order to take the original kinescopes, so that you didn't have lines going across, circulating like this mm-hmm. when you put it on VHS. It was a really hard amount of work to do the totality of what I've got, the documents. Um, you want to find out how to build a Saturn V? I got it. Um, not everywhere in NASA even has the original plans for Saturn Vs. Um, and you mean the actual blueprints for the, the rocket? I have some original blueprints, yes. Uh, I also have some original photographs taken uh, from the uh, Von Braun era. Um, you name it, I probably have it. In fact, it was funny. There was this project going a, a few years ago to try to restore the lunar orbiter. Uh, there were five lunar orbiters in the pre-Apollo uh, flight uh, stage where they were mapping the moon to look for the best landing sites. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to restore this. And people were saying, well, where are we going to find the original uh, uh, lunar orbiter um, uh, negatives? Mm-hmm. Hello, I got some. <laughs> now, I got to admit, that was not my doing. That was just one of these weird happenstances. Where do I come? Will I come in college? What do I find when I go through the back room? They had them. That was one thing I did not have myself. Was sitting there on a shelf, unopened, a box, lunar orbiter negatives. And I'm wondering, who got this? And, well, now I do. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I've, I've got a, a very large collection of you name it. Uh, and I'm going to have to start dispersing uh, that stuff to younger uh, uh, researchers. And to that end, younger researchers in spaceflight history and engineering, um, give me a, uh, a ring yeah. <laughs> to use older technology. His, his, so let me know if you're interested in something. I may have it, and if you give me a good proposal, maybe I'll end up passing it along yes. your way. And many of the things that you have... Uh, could probably very well be museum quality. Well, yeah, I think I've been talking to a couple of places. Well, I did make a large uh, copy of. Um, well, I, I, I made a duplicate copy for a couple of um, museums of the videotape stuff. And uh, well, I say videotape; it's in DVD format. I've been spending the last fifteen years of my life transform transferring technology. Uh, yeah, and the uh, VHS to DVD, uh, uh, only to find out DVDs are now out of date. But uh, <laughs> I'm not doing it again to anything it, else. It that's can't it. go beyond Blu-ray. Though, uh, I don't well, know what I'm, else I'm a DVD. Right? That's it. I'm not spending the rest of my life. Digital might be the digital. Only yeah, thing that would you be do. the thing. Put it on solid state recorders. But yeah. um, where were we going with this? You were talking about giving away some oh, of your stuff to museums. Yeah, I, I've also been talking to some uh, museums about donating the displays. That uh, I made for our uh, uh, educational outreach, which don't seem to have any place in the, the new department. Uh, and they need to be uh, dealt with uh, in a way that it inspires uh, the young people. They come to the planetarium if they come from uh, an alumnus family and they were told by their parents to expect to see this, that, and whatever. And they come here and they say, where are all the rockets? Mm-hmm. Well, they're here, there, and wherever in the back rooms. Yeah. Uh, that's not going to, that, that can't stand. i got to find homes for that stuff. It's to, not going to be displayed here. To that end, what does it take, what do you think it takes to get the next generation of people really inspired? The space race. It's got to be something different. It can't be a space race thing. I mean, there were those who said with the Chinese developing, uh, they're programmed. 
uh, and taking big strides. Mm-hmm. The first uh, mission with uh, a uh, Chinese national on board, and then two, and then do a spacewalk, and then have three, and then a space station. I mean, they're making leaps and bounds because, well, Russia and us, we've all done it, and it's out there. That it's mm-hmm. easy for them to pick it up. They can do, in short periods of time, what took us enormous capital and enormous amount of time uh, to do because it's been done. Now right. they're doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they catch up, then it's going to be harder to go on. But there's not going to be, as some people projected, oh, with the Chinese developing their a national space program, there'll be a second space race. No, it shouldn't be. It should be togetherness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if, if what we can do is we can use our well-intentioned ideas of bringing peoples together through, uh, you know, awareness of diversity, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera, and turn that into, you know, going to, they'll say to the stars, we're not going to the stars, but mm-hmm. I mean, going out into the solar system together mm-hmm. as humans. Yeah. Um, there will be that aspect that will get people interested and there'll be the pioneering aspect of it i mean we have uh, a young woman who's majoring in astronomy with us who she's seriously considering being one of those who just leaves the planet and goes to mars to stay mm-hmm. uh, i want to come home <laughs> i mean i want to go to the moon mm-hmm. i wouldn't mind staying there six months mm-hmm. maybe even going back but i'm i'm an earthling yeah all right uh i, I don't want to just go and stay i mm-hmm. I don't have that totality of pioneering spirit. Right. Um, but nevertheless, there will be those who want to do that. Mm-hmm. They want to become the Martians. Yes. Okay, fine. That's great. Uh, that can motivate people as it has this young lady. Mm-hmm. Uh, I should say young woman, sorry. Uh, and um, there will be other things. Mm-hmm. There will be those who want to see what does the sky look like from Mars. Well, basically the same as it looks like from here. Yeah. But don't tell anybody who mm-hmm. wants to go to Mars to look at the sky. Or go but, to a planetarium. Then you, then you don't got to fly anywhere. Yeah. Well, although you still should want to. But Yeah, and you also still want to go out into the uh, countryside. Find yourself a place where you don't have to spend a million dollars to make yes. a planetarium. Yeah. And look at the real yes. sky rather than just the digital one. Yes. You have to have more patience because the sky will turn for you. Mm-hmm. You can't turn knobs, uh, do things with computer software, and make whatever you want to happen. There's room for both. The digital sky, but don't just be a digital sky person. Yes. Be a real world person because mm-hmm. I stood out there in the freezing cold with my dad looking through a Boy Scout telescope at things that I read about in here. And despite the fact that that cheapo Boy, Boy Scout telescope was crap in terms of its optical qualities, it was exciting to look at that stuff. That's the real universe yep. in which I live. And for all you dummies who live in New York City, back to you guys. And, <laughs> What's and with LA or Chicago or any one of those dumps. Uh, oh, boy. It, both for your football teams and for the fact that your city's a dump. Uh, <laughs> what you need to do is drive far away from your city so that you can, uh, mm. you can see the sky. Because... Uh, you might think it's light pollution, but no, the stars literally don't want to be seen by you because <laughs> you are from such a horrible place. He said that, not me. <laughs> yeah, but no, uh, I, I, I want to go to uh, some of... And there are other ways to, yeah. to finish answering your question. That There's no specific answer to it. There's My generation had the Apollo program and the aspects we took from it that inspired us to do X, Y, or Z. Because mm. after all, how many of us actually became astronauts? I mean, I've met seven of the 12 people who've landed on the moon. had the great pleasure of having dinner with them. I was hoping to get the eighth one, but he just recently died. 
Oh, Alan Bean, I'm sorry, but thank you for the painting. Uh, <laughs> he gave me a beautiful painting of uh, Feather and Hammer, you know, and Apollo 15 again, my mm-hmm. favorite mission, holding a geology hammer and a falcon feather side by side. Dave Scott dropped it, showed the Galileo was right. Yeah. They went side by side in a vacuum. Uh, anyway, uh, you know, there were 12 people who landed on the moon so far. I want to see thousands and thousands, mm-hmm. eventually many hundreds living on, on the moon. Uh, not in my day. That won't happen. But they'll, we had that particular type of uh, thing that inspired us to do whatever we ended up doing, not being astronauts. There's going to be a different thing for the kids coming to the planet. Well, we had a planetarium show tonight for the uh, first Friday. That's mm-hmm. uh, a thing for local people uh, to celebrate aspects of what's in Williamsport. And the planetarium is one of them. Mm-hmm. Little kids come. They love the planetarium while they're still little kids. But there'll be something that will be available in their time that will inspire them to do all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what that is. Right. Uh, because I come from a different mindset, I probably can't even think about what that mm-hmm. might be. And it, it's kind of pointless to project because it'll, ha- it'll happen. Yes. As it happens. Correct. To happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever that is. Yes. Uh, and if you could predict it, then you'd probably be a billionaire, uh, because these or are. Or since is, I can't balance a checkbook, I'd probably be a. Uh, well, you'd be a billionaire, yeah, but I'd someone be a billionaire would rob you somewhere along the line. Rob you of your billions, yeah. yes. Uh, but, ladies and gentlemen, we're gonna wrap it up. It's been real. You got Dave Fisher here. My first podcast. He is the the greatest collector of space flight memorabilia in the history forever. But he will never be topped because we'll probably never go to space again. <laughs> this shit's going to, so I'm going to die before we even get another rocket off the ground. Except for Elon Musk and his goddamn Teslas that he's shooting off in the infinity. I hope nobody runs into that thing sometime in the future on their way to Mars. Wouldn't that be interesting? <laughs> oh, we have God. a... a Car Splat. crash, yeah, yeah, so much car for your, crash and uh, a spacecraft and car. Yeah, so much for your automated car, Mister Musk. Yeah. Wow, Mister, that sounds horrible. Mister Musk, definitely change your last name, Elon, dummy. All right, and you probably live in Chicago or L.A. or New York too. It fits the bill. I'm done. We're done. It's it. It's over. Dave Fisher finishes Pepsi. He needs another one probably. Uh, I've, I've had three today, which is way beyond my usual limit. That's way yeah. too much high fructose. We gotta end it. We're ending it. We're out. Bye. Okay. We're all done.